0: I am. I. I. I got to say that I am thrilled about the church that Sarah's going to. I know Kevin Reich there at Relevant Life Church in Salem, and she is going into a solid community there. She's going to be in just a, a healthy place to serve. So praise God, Sarah. We celebrate with you. Um, right now, we are going to release the kids up to kids' church. So kids, have a blast. I, I'm sure there's not going to be a bit of candy. So don't don't go with any expectation. It's probably going to be very very disappointing. Have a blast, kids. of the little bit 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 of Raina knows more about what's going on than I do. I'm desperately looking for where I put my notes, my tablet. And she's like, it's over there. Said, Thank you, Raina. <laughs> um, well, this morning we are concluding our series, Afterlife. And uh, it was it's probably been one of the most challenging series that I've ever preached. And to be honest, it could go on for many more weeks as we talk about and discuss and unpack uh, so much of what apocalyptic literature is talking about when we talk about the eschaton which is uh what's to come what's what's after this life and uh and so uh, this has been a weighty topic and i know there are a variety of of viewpoints I, i'll tell you within our own staff we have some different uh viewpoints of what we we would see as what what would kind of be the order of things and how things would flow in the end times we don't uh know all these things but this is why we talked about in the in the first in um, the first message of the series that there's some things we need to hold on to with a, a closed hand They say these are absolutes. This is this is uh, these are doctrines We cannot release and there's other things that are dogmas that perhaps are important to us and they they, they help form our, our our worldview and our 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 ideology of what this looks like But we can hold them with a more open hand a more gracious hand saying you know what? There's some things we won't know till we're on the other side of eternity um, but today uh, is, is a really interesting day as we are getting ready to uh, talk about the end days. And uh, apocalyptic literature is one of the most uh, complex, hotly debated topics uh, in, in biblical history. I mean, you talk about things that, that... This is not just today. This isn't like it's one of those hotly debated things that's like in our world today or even like the last hundred years or thousand years, this actually goes back thousands of years. Even before Christ, there were debates going on about how the world would end. Like what what would actually what would it look like? And uh rabbis and scholars in Jesus' day would read prophecies from Daniel and and uh Isaiah and Joel and have these debates on on who the Messiah would be and what the end of the world would look like and, and as I mentioned the eschaton. And and it's crazy stuff. I mean, if you look in the book of Revelation, there is some crazy stuff. Tolkien doesn't ha- hold a candle to the stuff that this tux- stuff talks about. You read Lord of the Rings, it has none. There are dragons with seven heads. There there are there are beasts coming out of the sea that have 10 horns coming out of their heads. There are apocalyptic horsemen coming down from the sky. There are demon locusts. What? there are demon locusts there are angels that it says are literally covered in eyeballs even under their wings they're covered in eyeballs this is crazy stuff that you're like john what what you cool like what were you it's 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 like wild kind of things and so we're trying to decipher what does this mean and, and people are putting different lenses and understanding on what we're reading and so there's so many countless questions that we could address as to the meaning of it all and what we're supposed to do with this information and so uh, fortunately for you in the next 30 minutes I'm actually going to explain everything and you'll walk out of here with a perfect understanding so I'm kidding I'm I'm probably not going to solve even a fraction of the questions we have to be honest as I was working on this message I had, I I had an, uh, what is it, my eyes were bigger than my stomach. I thought, I, th- I thought I was going to tackle everything. I was like, I'm going to tackle revelation. And I had on, I had whiteboards prepared with like laid out of like timelines and different things and like different breakdowns of what we can look, you know, look at and different lenses and all this stuff. And I realized I'm going to preach a three hour message and I don't know if people would appreciate that very much. And so... I was really planning on do, spending a lot of time in the book of Matthew and then a lot of time in the book of Revelation and it just, it didn't, it wasn't working out. So um, I've decided today to really focus on the book of Matthew chapter 24 because um, we're talking about what leads to the end times. Once we're, once we're into eternity and seeing these things transpire and things, I think it's going to be a little different, but I want us to really have an idea of what we can look at as we talk about end days, what can, we can expect, what's this mean for us? And Jesus addresses this. So um, this message is a, a little bit academic in nature. Perhaps it's going to be actually talking about eschatology. We're going to be talking about theology and things of that nature. But I believe that it's going to really bring us to a crucial truth as well. I, th- I believe that there's a good walk away from this moment that we'll actually have that will actually tie everything together. Um, and I do want to tell you that I speak the things that I'm going to talk about this morning with much humility. Um. I don't have all the answers. Uh, There's a variety of perspectives and explaining. I'm going to explain this morning my own position and why I stand in that position. But I I also want you to know that there are biblical scholars and theologians that are far more knowledgeable than myself, that, uh, that have far more experience than I do, that have views that greatly differ from each other that they don't agree with each other. And so, um, but, but something that I've always enjoyed, and maybe you have had this same thing with teachers in your life. The teachers that I always admired the most and I always drew from the most were not teachers that told me what I should know, but taught me how I should think gave me the tools in in which to actually be able to, to take things apart myself, to be able to think critically myself. And so this morning, I don't want to just give you information so that you can be fact regurgitators, but to give you the tools to be critical thinkers. As Paul told Timothy, to rightly be able to divide the word of truth for yourself. There's so much we can draw from a Sunday morning sermon, but there's been studies done that even just four minutes of Bible reading by yourself each day for the week... You draw more spiritually from that, from what I can even dispense in these few minutes I have with you on a Sunday. And so I want to be you to be able to to to, to take these things and these concepts and be able to be able to look critically into Scripture and to have wise uh, means of, of dissecting and being able to understand what we're reading. So. So as I mentioned this morning, we're going to be primarily looking at one section of scripture and it's not from Revelation, which I was planning on the whole time going Revelation. But as I said, we're going to the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Matthew chapter 24. You can go to the Bible app and uh, if you click on, uh, I believe it's events or something like that, um, you can find the the event right there, which has all our verses in there. You can follow along as well. The Bible app is the first app that comes up in your app store. If you search Bible, it's the very first one and uh, you can follow along with us there. So Matthew chapter twenty four. It's most of the way through your Bible, uh, in the last probably quarter of your Bible, and it's at the end of Jesus' life. Jesus' life is very interesting because as he has his disciples, he has three years with his disciples, and in this last year, they are slowly making their way towards Jerusalem, and they finally arrive there for Jerusalem for this special event called Passover. It's a special feast that they were going to celebrate together and it's a it's a really a spiritual pilgrimage that they're taking. This is a very exciting moment. And so, here's what it says in Matthew chapter 24 verse 1. Uh just a minute, let me open my get myself there. It says as Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. In the parallel uh Gospel of Mark, it says that uh the disciples said, "Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at how impressive uh, look at the impressive stones in the walls now the disciples were in awe because they were good old country boys they were from they were from Galilee they were from the lake they were from upriver they were they were they were not used to the big city um, I remember in eighth grade when I went to New York and I just couldn't fathom that they could build a building so tall and that's the kind of thing fascination they were looking at the temple with they were they were going teacher look at the size of the blocks in this it's enormous can you believe this jesus and jesus responds to them by saying or i'm gonna actually before i go on there so so they were they were in they actually had good reason to be in awe um herod's temple that they were at was one of the wonders of the ancient world it was amazing it took nearly a century to build it And it covered an area larger than 15 football fields. It was one and a half times the size of our U.S. Capitol building. And this 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 is actually a scale model that's been built um, in Jerusalem. And this scale model itself is about half a football field. It's still pretty cool looking. But you can see the size and scale. That door down at the bottom, people would maybe go up a third of the way on that door. You can see the size of the columns and the pillars. This place was enormous. That That area with the red roof right there, that would have been the area where Jesus cleared the temple. That would have been where the money changers and the people selling goods and things would have been at. And so for the last week, Jesus has been in this temple complex on the Temple Mount, uh, teaching, having confrontations. There's been all kinds of things going on for this last week. And they're walking out what is probably that lower door there. And the disciples are just marveling at this incredible piece of architecture. They're like, look at this Jesus. And Jesus responds to his disciples and he says, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left On top of another. Now, the temple was massive. The temple was huge. Some of the individual stones in the temple measured almost 45 feet long. They were the length of a city bus, and they weighed 400 tons. That's big. So, so Jesus says, "I'm telling you something that these stones won't even be left on top of each other." And this, this just, this was unthinkable to the disciples. That's impossible. They literally couldn't fathom that something like that could happen. How do you destroy something you can't even move? And so, so this was just—it didn't connect with them. So, moving on, it says later Jesus sat down on the Mount of Olives. So they come down out of the out of the temple there, up up onto the Mount of Olives, which actually looks over this area. And he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. And his disciples come to him privately and say, tell us, when will all of this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? This is important. The disciples ask how many questions here? Two. They ask two questions here. They're two separate questions, but really they're tied together. Because in their minds, there's no way that the temple can be destroyed and that not be the end of the world. So so it would be like someone telling you, listen, in just a few days, New York City, it's going to be wiped off the map. It's gone. You would be like, that's the end of the world, pretty much. That would have to be like nuclear holocaust. That would have to be like an asteroid hits the earth. You know, if they predicted that the New York was gonna be gone, there's like a tsunami that just takes everything out. Something crazy has to happen to wipe out an entire thing like that. So they tied these questions, really, they were, they were tied together. They were, they, this is apocalyptic, end of the world type stuff. The, the temple was the center of their world. The Jewish community's world was centered there. It was the region of commerce. It was the cultural identity that was tied to it. Their actual treasury was there. Everything Jewish was connected to the temple. And so Jesus says, this place is going to be destroyed. And they couldn't fathom it. They said, "What? what's going to be the sign that that happens? And what's going to be the sign that also it's the end of the world? And here's what Jesus says. He says, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yet these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all of this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when the good news about the kingdom will be, uh, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. So this, this is interesting because the question is, which question of the disciples is Jesus answering? So let me tell you, uh, drum roll, the entire chapter has been debated essentially since the moment Jesus spoke it. This has been a debate. What's Jesus actually answering here? This uh, the, either So there's some options. Either Jesus is answering the first question, Jesus, when is this going to happen, this destruction of the temple, all the rocks being pulled down, when's that going to happen? Or he's answering the other question, what's the end of the world going to look like? Or he's answering both questions. And there's a variety of perspectives on this. One view says that Jesus' response is exclusively speaking just to the end times. When he responds to the disciples, he's kind of skipping over the, the temple part and he's jumping to this is end time stuff. The other view says um, this, is, this is only speaking about the destruction and sack of Jerusalem. Jesus is talking about what's going to happen when Jerusalem falls. And, and, uh, and there's actually some really fascinating uh, things that, that a lot of theologians pull from this. When Jesus says later in this chapter, he says this generation will not pass away until this occurs. Um, a Jewish generation, do you know how long that is? It's 40 years. If you look in the Old Testament when Moses is in the, de- in, in, the de- in the wilderness with the Israelites and they sin and God says you need to stay in the wilderness for this generation, it's a 40 year period. Throughout scripture we see 40 years as a generation. Well, within 37 years, Jerusalem would in fact be overthrown by Rome. Um, there would be an uprising against Rome, Rome would come in, come in and crush it and then they actually went in and destroyed the temple and, uh, and completely obliterated it. So many theologians say it did happen within a generation. But other theologians would look at that and say actually there were generations can be translated to people group, this group of people. And so that's actually a national identity. So he's speaking, the Jewish people will not pass away until the end comes. So there's, there's this, this different perspective. Still others pe- might say, well, Jesus is actually jumping back and forth between the two questions throughout this chapter. He's addressing the fall of Jerusalem and then he's talking about the end of the world. And then he talks about the fall of Jerusalem and then he comes back to the end of the world and he kind of moves back and forth. And then there's other people that say, that there's a certain point in the chapter at which Jesus Jesus just changes direction. He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem, and then he talks about the end times, and he doesn't really give us a clue as to where that was. But the outlook I lean towards, like I said, I was going to share my perspective on this, as I weigh Jesus' words with John's vision in Revelation, because there's a lot of parallels we see in John's vision in Revelation, it's more of a Venn diagram. You know the Venn diagram where there's two circles that overlap each other? There's, there's a, uh, a theologian named C.I. Schofield, and this is his interpretation as well. He says that he, Jesus is actually speaking about these two events in parallel. There's some things that Jesus speaks about that are unique to the fall of Jerusalem, and there are a few things Jesus speaks about that are unique, especially after verse 30, that are unique to the end of the the end of the age. But at the same time, many of these things actually are applicable in both directions. Both the first century church, both the disciples in the first church, um, would have this applied to them just as well as the 21st century church. That's us in the same way, and is living in the end times. And so, um, all of these things need to be regarded and weighed in. And so, as the Jewish people were dealing with Rome and dealing with oppression, in the same way as we are in end times church, we are dealing with very similar things, and Jesus ties these together. And so, take a look at what Jesus starts off by doing. He starts off by warning that many will come. This is, I'm giving you some examples here. Jesus starts off by warning, he says uh, in, in uh In in verse 5, he says, "...many will come in my name claiming that I am the Messiah." Now this, is, we know, is something that would happen. As a matter of fact, it's mentioned in Acts chapter 13. Jesus is warning the disciples there's going to be someone named Bar-Jesus that comes along. There's going to be these other these other characters that come along claiming to be me, claiming to be my return, claiming to be the Messiah. And he's warning them about that. But also, the church in the last days is warned about this. In Revelation, we're warned about the Antichrist. We're warned about this these characters that are going to come and try to draw people away from truth. In verse 9, Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to be arrested and persecuted and killed. And these things did indeed happen. As a matter of fact, 10 of the apostles, 10 of the disciples were martyred for their faith. Um, the church endured tremendous persecution through Paul, through, through the diaspora that happened. We also know that suffering is to be expected as a last days church. As you read in Revelation, there's suffering, there's martyrs that will, that will endure In verse 14, it says, the good news about the kingdom will be preached to the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. So Jesus tells them, the good news is going to be, about the kingdom is going to be preached to the whole world so that all nations will hear it. Now, this is interesting because there was a diaspora of the church that first occurred because they were under, uh, under oppression from the actual Jewish people. There was, there was the religious, uh, uh, Strength the, the 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 Jewish people that actually uh, like the Sadducees and Pharisees that Paul was a member of that that were attempting to crush these followers of Jesus and because of it they were scattered. But then in the year seventy A.D. when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem, they actually destroyed uh, destroyed the temple. And then there was a second, uh, attempted overtake. And again, they crushed it. And then do you know what they do? They they did. They, they kicked every Jewish person out of Jerusalem and did not let them return. And do you know, Jerusalem and, and, and Israel did not become a sovereign nation again until 1966. Rome is the one that started that. There was a diaspora, and all these believers, whether they were kicked out because of their religious faith or kicked out because of their cultural identity, there was a dispersion of the gospel across the world, and it was preached everywhere at the end. So we see that as Jesus was talking about, but then we also know that the good news will be preached in our generation, around the world, through through the gospel, and it's going to go out, and that's going to bring in and usher in the return of Christ. So... All this to say, this commission—we are the commissioned church. Just in the same way, Jesus told the disciples one day there, there there will be a time where there's a dispersion, dispersion of the gospel. It's going to go to every corner of the known world. The Jews are going to be sent to to Rome. They're going to be sent to Carthage. They're going to be sent around everywhere. They're going to be sent to 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 Asia Minor. The gospel will be preached everywhere. The same way, we are the great commissioned church to go into all the world and preach the good news. So continuing on in Jesus' response to the disciples' question, he says "He says this, picking up in verse 15. He says, The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, this this, uh, sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down in a house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. This is a segment that I would think in that Venn diagram would definitely be on the side of especially focusing on what Jew, Jew, uh, Israel was going to face soon. What the Jewish people were going to face soon. There was going to be this, uh, this incredible uh, oppression that comes on. Those in Judea are going to need to flee. A person um, that's at their home needs to get out of town. Um, but he talks here about a desecration standing in the holy place. And you notice that Matthew has a little aside. Do you see the, the parentheses there? He stops using the quotes for Jesus and Matthew kind of throws, his, thrown his, throws in his own little note there. He's like, hey, by the way, reader, pay attention to this. Check this out. And he wants you to go read what Daniel actually says. And so if we actually go and jump to what the book of Daniel says, it says this. It says his army will overtake the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Daniel is predicting what would happen when Emperor Titus comes in and destroys the temple and it's a very interesting thing that happens there because this Jewish revolt happens, happens against the occupation. It starts in 66 AD and concludes in 70 AD and, uh, and the Jewish historian Josephus, who's not in the Bible, he's a historian, he wrote that there's an estimated 1.1 million non-combatants that died in this war. 1.1 million non-combatants that died in this war. So this this, this uprising was quelled they squashed it and, and for weeks they came in then and were levering off these these giant rocks of the temple i don't know if it's the next slide um these giant rocks of the temple were levered off and you can still see it these are outside the wailing wall you can see the size and scale of these rocks the disciples this is what the disciples couldn't believe would happen they're like, this, this is impossible. These rocks are too enormous. But the Romans came in with all their technology and all their manpower and their might and they, they systematically over a week's time pushed these rocks over the edge and destroyed the temple. But before they did, they came into the holy place to the, to the altar that was dedicated to God for sacrifices to God. And there they made sacrifices to their own Roman gods on the altar that was to the one God. And the altar was desecrated in that time. And so, and so we see this, this moment of, of, of very specific where, where Jesus is speaking to this moment. And it's, it's an incredible thing because last year actually, Hosanna and I were able to visit Rome and, um, uh, Pastor Todd and Christine mentioned this the other day at the seniors event. They got to show pictures of their trip to Rome. This is the arch right here that is, um, the Arch of Titus. And so whenever a, uh, conquering, uh, a conquering Caesar would come in, they would get to build a, an arch to celebrate their victory. And as a matter of fact, if you walk through that arch, you, uh, the other direction, you literally are right at the Colosseum. You're like a couple hundred yards from the Colosseum. It's incredible. And so then they'd march their army through that arch and they'd march their slaves through that arch and declare their victory. And so this arch was erected after uh, Titus destroyed the Jewish rebellion. And inside there are reliefs that have been carved that are still there to this day, 2,000 years later. And it's incredible. This relief is on the wall and it shows them carrying away the articles from the temple. You can see there, there's a menorah that they've got in their hands, and they've got slaves behind them. And so this this depicts what his victory over the Jewish people was. And so, all of this happened, this culmination of events. And the Temple is desecrated, and and this is what Jesus was pointing to. And then, if we move down though to verse thirty, there's a there's a, a shift. So as I said in this Venn diagram, where Jesus is speaking about the end days, but he's also speaking about uh, what was happening in their day. In verse thirty, it says, and then at last. I feel like there's a break here in the, in the text. He says, And then at last the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great authority. And he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of the trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the son himself, only the father knows. So Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to see signs that tell you the end is coming and you're going to know it's the end of the world as you know it, and it's come and it's not going to catch you off guard because you will have seen the indicators. It's not going to be a surprise. Um, as, as we look outside, we see a lot of orange leaves. We see a lot of yellow leaves. We see a lot of things changing out there and we know fall is here, but we can also deduce from that winter's right around the corner. Winter is coming, right? We we know that that's going to happen because we see the signs in the same way he compares it to the, to, to a woman going into labor. When you start to feel those contractions. At first, they're more spaced out and perhaps not as intense, but they they get closer and closer together and more and more intense as you feel that moment coming, as you feel that that something is going to happen. In the same way, church, when we see the signs of the times, when we hear what Jesus talks about, the wars and the rumors of wars, when we hear about famines and earthquakes, these are birth pains of the end days. There are these contractions, like like in pregnancy, increase in frequency and increase in intensity. And we know that the time is gl- growing closer to when Jesus will return. And we know it draws close, but we can't predict when it will happen. Only the Father knows, Jesus says. The angels in heaven don't know. People don't know. He says, the Son doesn't even know. Only the Father knows the day and the hour. When these things are going to happen. See, th- I think this is important for us to understand because I, I think in our humanity it's so easy to get sidetracked. It's so easy to get sidetracked. There's, there's a, a NASA engineer by the name of Edgar Weisenant, And uh, in the 80s, he believed that he had unla- unlocked the numerical code in the Bible that predicted the exact return of Christ. And so he wrote a book called 88 Reasons... Jesus will return in 1988. Pretty convenient number. And uh, he either sold or gave away 4.8 million copies of his book. And he promised, he would go on on, on Christian television and make promises saying, Jesus is guaranteed to return between September 11th and September 13th of 1988. Uh, we're still here, by the way. Um Unfortunately, um, his book is out of stock currently on Amazon, but uh, but it is listed there. Uh, but September, as you know, 13th or 11th through 13th came and went. So Edgar actually uh, looked back. He realized I forgot to carry a number or something. He recalculated, and the next year he made a book, and it was the reasons Jesus is coming in 1989. And that year came and went. So he let things cool down for a while. Edgar did, and uh, in 1993. He published another book. And guess how many reasons it was that Jesus was coming back? No, it was 23. 23, he was, I guess he had to roll back some of those. So 23 reasons Jesus is returning in 1993 didn't happen. So then he wrote his last book on the reasons Jesus was coming back in 1994. So here's here's the deal. I remember several, year, several years ago, there were billboards up on the freeway. That people were predicting when Jesus was going to come back. And it, I think it's just something, we want to have that control. We want to have that knowledge. We want to have that, that assuredness that we've got this figured out. But the truth is, end times prophecy is not a secret cipher for us to solve. It's not, it's not a timetable of Jesus' return that we're like Nicolas Cage in, in National Treasure. And we're like, we got to steal the Declaration of Independence. And we're going to figure out when Jesus comes back. That's not what end times prophecy is about. That's that, that's not what it's about and I I I had I, in my first message I had it all prepared like uh I had the spectrum of of different views of of literalism that we can approach with prophecy and and more of the lens view of how we actually use it as a lens to view uh, uh cultural backgrounds and how that actually applies to the audience that like John was writing to in Revelation it was really exciting and you would have definitely slept a lot but uh You're welcome <laughs> But let me just tell you this. There is no reason that God would try to hide these things from us. There's no reason God would play games with the culmination of time and judgment day. That's not, That's it doesn't make sense that God would try to hide these things from his people. It's not like, I, I know many people that kind of feel a pressure like, I didn't crack the code and thus I missed it. Or worse yet, I damned my soul because I missed some sort of thing that was supposed to be there that I was supposed to understand. And let me tell you this, it's also so important, church, for the credibility and testimony of the church, it's important that we don't go out and start taking headlines and attaching them to prophecy and saying, see, that's it, and that's it. Can I tell you, throughout history, there are many opportunities for us to have attached Antichrist to some people. I'd say Hitler is a pretty top-notch candidate for Antichrist. I'd say we could go and attach meaning. I heard once that uh, when when the European Union started to form and there were the 10 initial members of the European Union, people were losing their minds because they're like, that's the 10th horn on the beast that comes from the sea. And now it's up to 27. And they're like, we're out of horns. (laughs) You see, when we do that, it starts to build a lot of fear behind it. It becomes a fear-based thing. Can I accidentally do this? Can I accidentally... Can I miss something? Is there some sort of secret code I'm missing? But that's not what Scripture is about. It's about seeing the times and knowing His return is soon and we should be busy. We should be about the Father's business. See, so much fear can build up. And I I don't have a rapid fire round, but there was one thing I wanted to talk about because it's really been a hot topic in news lately. Can I accidentally get the mark of the beast? And what is the mark of the beast? In the book of Revelation... It's interesting because as I did my study, I was like, oh, this is good stuff. There's a recurring number John uses, and that's the number seven over and over again. He opens up writing this letter, and it's to seven churches. And then within that, he actually, there's three separate cycles of seven. There's seven, seven different uh, seals on a scroll, and then there's seven different trumpets that blow, and then there's seven different bowls of God's judgment that are poured out. The seven is a recurring number, and seven is the number of God. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. And so that's why John refers to this number over and over again. But then when he refers to the mark of the beast, he says it's the number of man. It's the number 666. And the number 666 is is the number of incompletion. It's it's the number of, uh, of imperfection. And the mark of the beast is this. It is the anti-shema. Now the shema is a prayer of allegiance that's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. When in Deuteronomy chapter six God calls the, the, the followers of Christ, he says that they're to bind his commandments to their wrists and then to their foreheads. And this is a, a prayer of, of commitment, of allegiance to the Lord, and it represents in their thoughts and in their actions. That's why it's there, on the hand and on the on the forehead. It's my allegiance is to God. So then when we look at the book of Revelation and it says he takes the mark of man upon their hand, their wrist, or upon their forehead, what it's saying is that that they are taking upon themselves allegiance to something other than God. It is a willing decision to say, I'm going to conscientiously rebel against the one who is in control, the one who is perfect, the one who is God. It's not something we accidentally ingest. It's not something we accidentally take. It's nothing like that. The mark of the beast is a willing decision to say, I'm going to turn away from God. So you can't accidentally end up with the mark of the beast. Oh no, what did I do? It's a willing decision. And so um, I, I forgot that I had a cool picture there too. The, those things that are still worn by Jewish men today, quite literally, they're called phylacteries. They wrap that around their wrist and they wrap that or place that upon their forehead and it has these words, this, this, uh, this prayer of allegiance to God on it. And so the mark of the beast is a rejection of God. It's an act of rebellion against God. So we have nothing to fear in accidentally receiving that. I wanted to make sure that was clear. So let me go on. This is why it's important though, all of this, is why it's important we understand what Jesus is driving at in his response to his disciples. We go back now to Matthew chapter 24. What's Jesus talking about to his disciples? What's he trying to express to them in this? In so many situations, the world is watching Christians. Especially the crazier things get. I feel like there's always, there's like this pendulum that's swinging of justice and truth. And, and when, when the world sees something happening, they respond and they overreact and they go all the way over here. And then we see there's this, this crazy reaction and they're tearing things down and they're destroying things. And then there's this opposite reaction and they fly the other way because there's no center for when we're not anchored to the one who is the rock. But church, can I tell you that we need to be careful that we aren't the ones that are going crazy, running back and forth, saying, oh no, the the sky is falling, we're chicken littles running around because the world is watching us. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 6, you will hear of wars and you'll hear of threats of wars, but don't panic. He says these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Here's what he's telling his disciples. There are going to be times where there's going to be persecution. There are going to be times where you see your brothers and sisters' love grow cold. There's going to be times where people come claiming to be a Messiah or a false prophet. They're speaking on behalf of God. There's going to be wars. There's going to be natural disasters. There's going to be tragedies in your world. But despite all that, the good news is that uh, the good news, the gospel is going to be preached to all nations. And in all of it, Jesus promises us that in all of it, He is there. We are not alone. He is there. Team, if you'll come forward and join me. You see, this world, ultimately, Jesus is telling his disciples, is not spinning out of his control. When he predicts, it means he knows what's going, going to happen. When when Jesus predicts, it means he knows what's occurring. And so it's not outside of his control when he can say this is what's going to occur. And so he's telling his his, his followers, he's saying, history and the church are in my hands. God has not abandoned his people. We don't need to give into fear. We don't need to give into speculation. The future is in Jesus' hands. And so he says in verse 3, stand fir- firm and endure. Stand firm and endure. Bear witness to the world of the hope that we have. Because we know that one day Jesus is going to return as a conquering king. What an amazing hope. No matter what happens to us in this lifetime, no matter what we face, no matter what's ahead of us, we know that one day Jesus will return as a conquering king. He's going to deal with evil. He's going to vindicate his followers. He's going to bring justice to creation. And there's going to be a day coming soon in which... God is going to bring a new heaven and a new earth, and the space that is God's presence, heaven, is going to collide once again with human space on earth, and it's going to crash into each other once again, and this is going to be a place where we get to walk with God once again. If you can bring down the instruments just a little bit for me there. So, this promises that the end is not for fear, it's not a reason for fear, it's a, a promise. The end is not for fear, it's a promise. Jesus is actually telling his disciples this to encourage them. Sometimes we can read this and feel like, oh, that's that's weighty, that's scary. He's telling people to run away. He's warning pregnant women that it's going to be a terrible time. But Jesus is actually saying, but here's good news. This means that the end is coming and that good things are coming. In 1 Thessalonians 4, this is what it says, and I love the sentence that Paul ends it with. It says this. Paul says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And first the believers who have died will rise from their graves. And then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then, we will be with the Lord forever. And listen to this last line. So encourage each other with these words it's a promise of hope it's not a promise of fear of fear if we've put our lives into Jesus' hands and said no matter where this world is going I trust you we have nothing to fear we have nothing to fear I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment Um, History is moving to a destination. Time will come to an end one day and we will all step to the other side of eternity and we will see God for who He is. And the questions that we don't feel like we have answers to, many will be answered and things will come to light that we've never understood, but right now if you are living in doubt because you don't know where your soul stands you feel like man i see all these things happening in the news i hear i I feel fear i feel like i don't know what what's going to happen with tomorrow but i know i want to have that knowledge that there's someone who's bigger than i am that knows the answers that is ahead of me in all of this has my eternity in his hand and if that's you and you want to give your heart to that person that person is jesus And the Bible says that Jesus came while we were still sinners and he died for us that we could know him and we could be forgiven of our sin. You see, each person that's ever walked this earth has sinned at some point. Sin is choosing our own way and being separated from God. You see, God is a perfect God. And he can have no association with sin, no association with anything that would... would, uh, have anything to do with imperfection and it's not that God doesn't want us but his perfection separates us when we chose ourselves and chose sin and so in separation we received death but God loved us so much that while we had earned death while we had chosen our own way he sent his own son to live a perfect life the only one that has lived a perfect life and he lived that life and then he took our sin upon himself and he died on the cross He took that sin and he took death, the death that we deserved, and he died on the cross in our place. And then when he died, all that sin was taken away, but then he didn't stay dead. We serve a risen king. We serve a God who's alive. If he stayed dead, he was just a martyr. He just died for a good cause, but he is alive. We serve a mighty risen God. And that is the God who has eternity in His hands. And He offers that forgiveness that He's already given you to you today. You just need to accept it. So right now, if you want to give your heart to Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, this is between you and God. If you're ready to give your heart to Jesus this morning, I want you to raise your hand and I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Yeah, thank you. I see that hand. Yeah. Anyone else? I see those hands. Who else? Yes, thank you. Yes. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Praise God. The Bible says that heaven celebrates. When one of these lost sheep come home, he, he He has sought you out. You are here for this specific moment in time for a reason. And this morning, we celebrate with you as you give your life to Jesus. Now here's the deal. Part of it is giving your life to Jesus but I don't want to make it sound easier than it is because then we are to follow him it's his life of discipleship he says that we are to believe in our heart but we're also to confess with our mouth and when we confess we say you are now my Lord he now needs lordship in your life so right now if that's you and you're ready to make that decision this is not a light decision say I'm ready for you to be my Lord Jesus I want you to pray this and repeat it after me everyone in the room repeat this after me say dear Jesus thank you for loving me and forgiving my sins I believe that you died for me but I believe that you rose again and that I have eternity with you secure in your hands I don't have to fear tomorrow because you're already there thank you for loving me and forgiving me and giving me a hope and a future today I make you my Lord and my King your name amen 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 heaven celebrates with you this morning the decision you made to follow jesus praise god praise god So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do our connection cards. And what I ask is when we fill these connection cards out, would you do something for me? Would you mark that you gave your life to Jesus today? Because I want to be able to connect with you and help you with those tools on what it means to follow Jesus. Get you plugged in with other people that are on the same journey together. You're not alone. There's no shame in the decision you made. It's an exciting one. I'm trusting because the rest of us didn't raise our hands. We've made that decision at some point. We're all with you in this. We're walking this together, this walk with Jesus. So let us know that you've made that decision. even better yet, come talk to me after this service. I want to pray with you, talk with you, uh, connect with you. So let me know. Uh, I want to celebrate that with you. So right now, um, let's fill out our connection cards. You can do it by scanning with your phone, at, with your camera on your phone, that QR code right there, or going to nlcchurch.com/connect. Or you can do the paper one if you're old school. You're welcome to do the paper one. Um, so let's fill out those connection cards. Take just a moment. And our ushers are going to prepare themselves, and this morning we're going to receive our tithes and offerings. So thank you for your giving. Um, what can I say this is an act of worship in and of itself I like what Pastor Ty said several weeks ago when we can trust God with our finances everything else is pretty easy when we can say God I trust you in obedience giving the 10% that you have called me to and I know that you will supply for my every need and you will bless me for my obedience what a great thing so let's give with joyful hearts this morning ushers prepare yourselves let's give Lord we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy and your 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 just boundless grace that we live in wow Thank you that you hold eternity in your hands. That we don't have to question and guess and speculate. But Lord, you just told us to be watching and ready. To be to be prepared for the day that you return. To be about the Father's business. And today, Lord, we uh, give so that we could continue the, the, the bringing of the good news to your world. That your kingdom would be established here on this earth as it is in heaven, Lord. I pray that you would use this offering. And that you would multiply it many times over. For those that have much, Lord, we give out of the abundance, Lord. For those that give out of the lack, Lord, I pray that a special blessing that it would be multiplied and that their, their joy would be complete and that you would supply for their every need. And we thank you, Jesus, for all these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give this morning. right new life let's stand together lord i pray you your blessing over your people as we go this week let us have a fantastic week give us opportunities to share the good news uh, in each person we come into contact with lord let us be uh, your church in these last days we pray in your name amen amen god